and welcome everybody to another episode of Smart Money Circle. I'm Adam Sarhan, your host. My guest today is Carl H. Schultz, CFA and Portfolio Manager at Schultz & Company with approximately $250 million in assets under management. Um, I'm looking forward to today's show. Carl shares his investment strategy with you, some timeless lessons he's learned from Yale to Wall Street, and he's a fifth-generation investor. So without further ado, Carl, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm, uh, this is my first podcast, so I'm certainly excited to do it. I'm sure you can do a great job. Uh, Carl, I always like to start by asking if you can tell us your story and how you got involved in this business. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, in terms of uh, my story, it, it probably makes sense to do a, a pretty brief family history. Um, you know, finance has really been a common thread for my family through the generations. Uh, you know, the firm I work at now is actually the second Schultz & Company. Um, the first one was started by my great-grandfather in 1905. And, uh, you know, they were a coffee and coca dealer um, based on Wall Street. And I think at one point, they were the largest coffee importer in the country. Oh, wow. um, he, he, he ran the firm, and then two more generations ran it until it was eventually sold in the 1980s to Cargill. Nice. So, you know, the, the current version is, is sort of Schultz & Company 2.0. And, uh, you know, my father started it in 1994. You know, we just had our 25th year anniversary. Congratulations. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, only we're not, we're not coffee and coca dealers. We are focused on the management of investments for individuals. And so I guess that's sort of a roundabout way of saying this is really a family-run and owned business. And I've been around this stuff my whole life. Um, you know, I'm the kid who's who's four or five years old and his father's showing him cool stock charts and having him watch Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser. Nice, nice. <laughs> um, so, you know, I've, I've definitely been around it, you know, a lot, uh, you know, just in terms of my, my personal background. You know, I graduated in uh, 2003 from Georgetown, and then I worked at Deloitte for a couple years. And at that point, um, you know, I was thinking about going to business school, and both my father and I decided it would, it would make a lot of sense for me to, uh, you know, try my hand at Schultz and Company for a little bit just to see if we could work together. It was kind of a big experiment. And so I had my first tour of duty with Schultz and Company in, in the 2005-2006 um, time frame. And then I went to Yale for a couple years. Um, and after graduating there, I worked at a mutual fund company called First Investors. Uh, covering healthcare and consumer staples stocks um, before finally returning to the mothership in 2012. Um, and, you know, now I'm a portfolio manager and, and you know, can't be, uh, you know, any more excited about what I'm doing. Oh, I love that. So just to clarify for the audience, when you say you manage money for investors, or do you manage with, with inequities or you do fixed income or do you still do coffee and uh, cocoa like you did before? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, it, it, we're, we're fairly, you know, traditional and uh, vanilla. Um, you know, I would say, you know, we, we are becoming more and more unusual in this day and age and, you know, compared to many of the other registered investment advisors in that, you know, we are first and foremost focused on investing. Um, you know, a lot of other RIAs are outsourcing money management via ETFs and mutual funds, whereas we're spending all of our time, um, you know, picking individual stocks and bonds. Um, which we put in customized accounts, and I, and I say we're vanilla because we're you know we're not doing you know exotic options or futures or anything like that. It's mostly stocks and bonds, um, you know. But what makes us unique, and or, or maybe gives us the ability to do that in this day and age, is 
you know, unlike a lot of other RIAs, we have in-house full-time analysts who can spend, you know, 24-7, 365 researching and searching for new investment ideas. And combined with the portfolio managers, um, you know, that's really what makes up the investment team and how we feel like we can continue to, you know, pick stocks in this day and age rather than, as I said, outsourcing the money management piece of it. Um, you know, we, we are focused certainly on investing. We do help with financial planning as well, but that's not really our primary value proposition. Um, you know, my, my, my father likes to use what he calls the wagon master analogy. And, and, uh, what, what that is, is, you know, he says, imagine it's 1850 and you're living in Philadelphia and, you know, the gold rush is happening. So you really want to get to California. Um, the financial plan is, you know, the covered wagon, the oxen, the supplies, you know, you have, you have the plans, the means to get to the West Coast, um, but, you know, there's going to be a lot of pitfalls along the way, and it certainly, certainly is not an autopilot kind of situation. So we are more of the wagon masters. We're the ones who are going to go with you across the country, uh, you know, and really guide you through your journey. Um, you know, the only other thing I'd mention is, uh, you know, just in terms of our client base, um, you know, our, our typical client has, you know, maybe around a million dollars with us. So we say high net worth individuals, you know, are our focus, but it really runs the gambit. You know, we, we have a lot of clients who, uh, you know, really live off this money in retirement and, and really look to us to, uh, you know, protect them and, and, you know, make sure that their lifestyle is, is uh, what they expect. Well, that's perfect. So that's a good segue for my next question. If you can elaborate, please, and tell us a little about your investment strategy and how you guys play the game. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think if you go back through the firm's history, you know, when my father first started out in 1994, we were very small. It was just him and an assistant in an office. And, you know, for him, he wasn't able to spend 40 hours, you know, of work on each individual idea. So what he did at the time was develop you know, quant models, which um, helped him screen for stocks. And then he would do some level of fundamental analysis from there. And that's how he would pick his securities. Um, you know, however, the, the one thing you learn in this world is you always need to evolve and adapt right. um, to the changing times and, and changing investment strategies of others. So, you know, that and for us, that means a couple things. Um, you know, one, we've sort of gotten to a size where we've been able to you know, hire in-house, you know, analysts. So we we have more research muscle. But the other thing is, you know, the quant world has gotten so sophisticated that it's it's frankly no longer really our niche. So what we've done is we've gone more retro in that we've kind of redoubled our, redoubled our efforts in terms of, you know, doing deep investigative fundamental stock work, uh, you know, building Excel models, talking with management, doing channel checks, um, you know, and also, you know, we've taken a longer time horizon because, you know, a lot of the quants um, and really the investment world in general, they are focused on, you know, what's going to happen this year or maybe next year. You know, they're looking at changes in sell side estimates. But, you know, what we're trying to do is look at, okay, how is this company going to look maybe three to five years down the road? And, you know, we think that that's still an area where there's a lot of market inefficiency. 
obviously it's very hard to figure out what's going to happen three to five years down the road. And that's why we spend so much time on each of our ideas. Um, you know, I think we, we often get the question, you know, how do we find our stock ideas? And, you know, I think what the question's really asking um, is, you know, what's your process where you do X, Y, Z and out pops ABC stock. And, you know, my view is it's, it's, there are no magic formulas, you know, in, in, in this, uh, you know, game where you can, where you can treat it like that. It's more about knowing a good stock when you see it. So we are going to search high and low through a variety of means for any, you know, good investment ideas. And, uh, you know, we just need to be able to recognize a good idea when we see it. Um, you know, the, the analogy I like to use is, you know, when, when I was a kid, I would go to the beach and I would be looking for crabs. And, you know, to do that, you just turn over rock after rock after rock until you eventually find a crab. So that's kind of what we're doing here. We're turning over rocks everywhere. And, you know, what we think is unique about our process is, you know, we feel very comfortable in understanding what a good investment looks like. So, you know, we've developed sort of a systematic process for that, which we call the framework. Okay. And, you know, the, the framework is really how we define um, or what parameters we use to define one of these companies that uh, we want to invest in. And, and we call them five-star companies because they have really five winning characteristics. Okay. Um, which, you know, I'll rattle off for you, you know, they are, they're gaining market share, you know, they operate in a, in a secular growth end market, they have high barriers to entry, they are uh, in high return, high margin businesses, and they're run by a good management team. And, you know, ultimately what those characteristics allow you to do is to, for the company, is to compound capital at a very high rate for a very long period of time. Um you know, and the other thing I'll say is, you know, those are all obviously kind of no duh positive attributes you'd want to have. I mean, wh which one of those would you not want to have in a company? But, um, you know, the tricky part is finding companies like that who you also can stomach the valuation, so to speak. Because, you know, really what we're looking for is, is wonderful businesses at fair prices rather than fair businesses at wonderful prices. Right. And so, you know, part of our process is, we build out a list of these companies and we're just watching them, waiting for an opportunity to get into them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe they have an investment year and the stock, you know, misses some estimates and, and has a weak, you know, performance for the year. And that's what creates the opportunity because all those five characteristics are still in place. Um, so that, that's, that's pretty much, you know, how we think about it, you know, in terms of, you know, stock selection. I love that. So, um, more of a fundamental orientation to you. Do you guys look at, you mentioned when you were a kid, you looked at stock charts. Do you guys use technicals at all in the analysis or entries? Um, we do, uh, you know, but I would say, you know, the vast, vast majority of our work is fundamentally driven. I mean, you know, we'll look at technicals for entry and exit points usually. Mm -hmm. So uh, when we've found one of these companies that's kind of down and out, you know, we don't always just buy it. We kind of wait for, the uh, the charts to maybe tell us that uh, you know the the pain is over, <laughs> right? Because you know sometimes these companies will linger you know for months and months on end, right? Um, conversely, you know we we do spend a lot of time trying to figure out well what is this company really worth, and you know when it goes well above fair value 
and we feel like there might be a reason to exit, i.e. the thesis might be eroding a little bit, you know, we're not going to sell it if it's on the dead run higher. So once again, we'll sort of wait for some technical, uh, you know, indicators to tell us that it, it's time to exit. But but that's a very small part of what we're doing here, the, the technical analysis. It's, it's really fundamentally driven. Understood. So the next question, Carl, is how do you handle risk and what mistakes do you see people make with respect to risk management? Well, uh, in terms of how we handle risk, um, you know, I, th- I think it's important to kind of put it in two buckets. And, you know, because we're, we're you know, managing individual accounts for our clients, you know, there's a really, there's a client side to this. And, you know, for us, we really want to make sure that we've sort of appropriately placed each client in, you know, a risk bucket, so to speak and really made sure that their portfolio matches up with their unique circumstances. So that, that's really the first line of defense. I mean, yeah, it, it's great if we're brilliant and we get out of the market before it goes down a lot, but you know, that, that's, that's hard to repeat. Um, but if we're already in the right spot before the storm starts, you know, that goes a long way. And you know, I think it, the important point with that also is you can't just look at um, – you know, an individual circumstances in a vacuum, um, you have to understand the personality as well. Because, you know, if, if you're a single um, person who's, you know, 35 years old and making 300 grand, um, you know, in theory, you and you don't need the money and you have a long time till retirement, in theory, you could be quite aggressive with your investments. But if at the same time, you, your personality doesn't match up with taking on much risk, um, you really would be doing them a disservice because they might lose a little bit of money, panic out of, of, of the market, never want to go back, and then they've just lost 30 years of, of compounding their you know, savings. Right. So I think that's kind of the first piece of it. On, on the, the second piece, of course, is you know, the investment process itself. And you know, there's sort of the portfolio construction piece, which is, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to understand, you know, how the portfolios are constructed, you know, looking at the, the volatility of the names within the portfolio, the sector allocation, the asset allocation. You know, I think we hold probably, you know, up to about 40 different equity positions um, in most accounts, uh, you know, a large position, we might start off with maybe three and a half or four percent of the capital uh, put to work, whereas a, a riskier name might only be like one and a half percent. And then, you know, of course, there's also the well, what do you do, you know, as the market's changing and how do you manage risk that way? So, on a macro level, we have developed um, an in house, what we call the dashboard, which is a bunch of different indicators just, just to tell us kind of where we are in the cycle. And it's, it's not market timing per se in that it's, you know, oh, well, we're going to be out of the market this month and get back all in the next month. It, it's more general than that. And what it's trying to tell us is, are we in the third inning of the economic cycle or the eighth or ninth inning? And as we progress through the game, you know, we want to slowly dial back the risk, move more towards defensive um, securities like bonds. And, you know, that, that certainly has treated us well over the, the last few decades. That's fantastic. So you basically look at risk based on each individual account, and then you look at where we are in the cycle and adjust accordingly and make sure that you're 
giving each client their appropriate risk that's they can tolerate or that's palatable for them, opposed to just yeah. having a one size yeah, fits all. It's all customized, so um, you know we're re- really trying to, you know, we're not trying to put anyone in any boxes, and, and that's you know one of the things I didn't mention. You know, we, we are our equity uh, investments we define as all cap core, which means, you know, we're not choosing growth or value or market cap size or anything like that because, you know, what we're really trying to do for our clients is find the optimal risk reward ratio. Um, for them in any individual security. And we don't want to pigeonhole ourselves that it has to be value, it has to be growth. Um, you know, we think that doesn't make a lot of sense to put, you know, I, I know Wall Street's put every everything in these style boxes, but uh, we've, we've always wondered the wisdom of that because if you see a great investment in different style boxes, does that mean you're not going to make it? Yeah, exactly. I get your point. So how about... Um... So how about individual stocks? How do you handle risk for your holdings? Let's say it's a five-star stock. You buy it. Technicals turned around. It bottomed, whatever the case may be. And now it's going higher. Things are good. And then all of a sudden, the fundamentals are good, but it starts rolling over again, whether it's due to individual stock action or sector action or the overall market. Can you speak to that a little bit, please? Yeah. So... um you know that that the the scenario you laid out sounds like kind of a high class problem. You have a winner and it's starting to roll over. Um, I think you know because we're taking this longer term time horizon. Um, ideally, we are not going to sell a stock just because there's sort of short term you know poor technicals or anything. We're focused more on okay, what is the fundamental thesis, and you know does it check the framework boxes, and if nothing's changed. Um, we're far less likely to want to sell it. Now, the flip side of that is we don't want to be stubborn and just watch this thing ride, you know, down 30 or 40 percent either. So, you know, as we as the stock declines maybe 15 or 20 percent, especially from our original cost basis, you know, we're going to take a very hard look at that. Okay, what are we getting wrong? Why is it going down? Um, is it rational? But you know, we're, we're trying not to be too short-term oriented here because that, I think, gets a lot of investors in trouble, trying to trade in and out, in and out, in and out. And, you know, all these stocks have, you know, normal oscillations yeah. um, and nothing's changed. Yeah. So, you know, ultimately, we're not really buying stocks, we're buying companies. And if the companies continue to progress in the direction we expect and hope, then, you know, there's no reason to sell it. But, yeah, I mean, at a point, you just have to admit you're wrong and, you know, get out. And, uh, you know, sometimes that happens. But, uh, you know, fortunately, it, it's less often. <laughs> I'm just <kidding. laughs> um, Okay, cool. So I guess the next question I have for you, what are some uh, time – well, before I go there, what about some mistakes people make with respect to risk management that you see happen? Is it just not being aligned with your own comfort zone or is it – other things that you can speak to? Well, in terms of mistakes that I see with risk management, um, you know, I, I, I do think that, you know, just in general, we're, you know, we're all human. We have uh, a lot of behavioral biases. And, uh, you know, I, I think sometimes, um, you know, people get caught up in the moment. I mean, 
risk management goes both ways. I mean, if if you're buying stocks as they're you know streaking to new highs, you're you're also probably taking on too much risk. And if you're selling a stock just because it's down a little bit um, and not working, you you might be you know losing a good opportunity. So I, I think you know what I see in terms of mistakes of risk management is just a lot of people succumbing to. Um, you know, sort of natural biases uh, and behavioral tendencies. Um, you know, the classic thing that, you know, there's a lot of literature written about is, you know, when, uh, or should I say studies done about is, um, you know, when people are down, mm-hmm. uh, whether they're at a casino or in the stock market or something, they're more likely to increase their bets. Yeah. So, you know, that would be, you know, throwing good money after bad, so to speak. So you have a losing position and you want to make up for it by putting more money in that position and, and hopefully it will turn turn around. Now, sometimes that can make sense, but I think people are, are more apt to lock in a profit after they've made 10% when the stock might be ready to go up fourfold over the next several years. And when the stock's down 20%, they want to triple their bet. Got it. So it's more along the lines of just that human behavior element, which is just so critical in both life and markets. Yeah. Got it. So next question for you, Carl. What are some timeless lessons you've learned along the way that you'd like to share? So, you know, I I think one of the ones that's really resonated with me over the years that uh, Peter Lynch made, you know, this concept famous, I think, was, you know, invest in what you know. And for me, you know, for him, at least the example was, you know, you go to the mall, you know, you know, the uh, Foot Locker store or something and you understand it and you, you're comfortable investing it. But I think it's more just beyond that. It's kind of stick with your sort of sphere of knowledge, so to speak. Yeah. And, um, you know, the example that, that comes to mind for me is that, you know, we had a portfolio manager who joined us, um, you know, I think this was seven or eight years ago and, and, and he stayed with us for a few years until he retired. And, and when he first joined, um, and he had spent a ton of time overseas, um, you know, he was sort of shocked that we weren't invested in more international companies. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, for us, you know, we had a lot of hesitation in doing that because, you know, you've got to know the political scene and the unique country's macro environment and the regulatory situation and the accounting might be different and the legal system's different. So it's really complicated. And, you know, when something goes wrong there, you know, we're over in the U.S., we're in a different time zone, we're going to be the last people to know. So we didn't feel as comfortable investing in that space. He did um, because he had spent so much time in some of these areas. Um, and so I think the point is that every stock, uh, you know, is, is not right for every investor. And if you don't know, if you don't invest in what you know or within your sphere of knowledge, when something goes wrong, you're not going to be able to react properly. Um, you're, you're going to be behind on the information. You know, the other investors, uh, you know, out there are going to have have a much better understanding of okay, the stock's down five percent. Is this a buying opportunity, or should we be panicking out of it? Um, so, uh, you know, I think that's a very important lesson lesson to follow. Um, you know, some some of the other things that you know sort of timeless lessons that, that I certainly take to heart is I really like to, you know, develop a strategy ahead of time. And what I mean by that is, 
you know, if a stock gets down to a level, I've already predetermined that I'm going to buy it there, provided nothing's changed. Right. Um, and, you know, act on that. Because usually what happens is a stock goes down, you, you know, everyone watches XYZ stock go up month after month, and they say to themselves, well, I can't wait for that moment when there's finally a pullback, and then I'm going to buy. And then a pullback happens, and they don't want to buy because they think, oh, something's wrong, or right. it doesn't look as fun because now it's down 10%, and, and you're just happy you don't own it. Yeah. And I think if you, you've sort of, you know, and, and write it down, I mean, if you've written down, okay, if, if, if this stock is going to, is going to come down to this level, I'm going to buy it. Um, and you do, I think a lot of times that will treat you well, because once again, back to these behavioral biases, you know, you're sort of overcoming that by have, you know, by making the decision ahead of time. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. So, uh, next question I'd like to ask, what are some timeless mistakes that you see people make in the market or with their money, not just with risk management, but just overall mistakes and how to avoid them? Yeah, so um, you know, I, I think one one of the examples that uh, really hits home for me now, and I'll tell you why in a minute, is this idea of you know some people they get really excited about um, you know a business opportunity or something because they they realize the demand is going to be really big, right? And what's failing to understand is is whether it's actually going to be a good business to be in and. Sort of the, the classic example of that to me is, is the personal computer uh, industry, which if you roll back the tape, you know, 35, 40 years, you know, it's going to be huge. And, and frankly, it was. I mean, you know, almost everyone has a personal computer. But, uh, you know, there might have been moments where, you know, some of these companies like Apple or, you know, IBM or Dell had a nice run. But, but what ultimately happened in that industry is it became very commoditized, cutthroat, low-margin business, and it wasn't a good business. So it wasn't really a good investment opportunity, even though the demand was huge. You know, the good the good investment opportunity was Microsoft. I mean, the software side of it, where you did have barriers to entry that hasn't been commoditized, that's been a good business. Um, the, the, the example I think of now, which is screaming this, is the marijuana industry. Right. So, you know, everyone thought, or has been thinking, well, marijuana is going to be huge when they legalize it. They've legalized it recreationally in Canada, and eventually maybe it will be legalized nationally in the U.S. It's going to be huge. So, you know, all of these stocks, if you if you go back a couple of years, had huge runs, you know, they're four or five-fold. And, you know, at least this year or recently, they've been crashing. I mean, I think they're down 80 or 90% most of them. And what has happened is there, there's no barriers to entry, and everyone was able to raise capital. You know, everyone could get a license from Canada to, uh, to grow the stuff, and you don't even need that much farmland or space to do it. So we have massive oversupply, prices are coming down, and these things are collapsing. So while, yes, marijuana demand is going to be big, it's not a good business to grow it. Right. It's like, you know, wheat is big, you know, but everyone, you know, has wheat, uh, but that no one's dying to invest in a wheat farmer because it's just a commodity business and it's not a high return, you know, high margin business that you want to be in. Right. Um, so that, that's definitely one of the bigger mistakes I see. 
That's a very good point too. It's it's not just look at the demand on the surface, but dig deep and understand the, the numbers to make sure that it's actually profitable and sustainable, and earnings grow and cash flow and all that other fun stuff. That's a really yep. good point. So, um, I mean, some of the yep. oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I, had, I mean, I had I, I thought of another one that you know I think is, is shoot yeah is, go for it. Uh, certainly harped on by by Kramer often, which is you know sort sort of this mismatch of of time horizon. So. You know, we see a lot of investors who have kind of a long-term thesis, um, but they'll trade a security short-term. And his, his always example is, you know, Apple, he says, right. own it, don't trade it. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think, you know, there is a lot of human nature to, you know, try and be what we say too cute. You know, you think the stock might go down 3%, so you sell it. Yeah. Um, even even though you think it might go up 100% three years out. And that that's being too cute. Um, just take the 3% down move and, and stick for the long term because most of the time what happens is you sell it, it might even go down 3% and then you don't get back in Yeah, and uh, you've missed it. Um, and so, you know, the, the last thing I'll just mention about mistakes is, you know, I, I certainly make them, you know, <laughs> because this is a very humbling business. And, and what I try and do is, um, you know, every year I, I kind of do a journal of, of what, mistakes I made during the year that I want to not make in the future. And so I've been building that for years now. And what I, I also do is every quarter I go back and review it. I love that. So, you know, it, it, trying to cut down on the mistakes uh, goes a long way in this business. Um, and there's a lot of mistake, potential mistakes to be made. <laughs> yeah, that's actually, I do this something very similar. To, um, I learned it from somebody who goes, it's a yellow brick road where you want to get to Oz and you just have to figure out how to trim those mistakes down because the winners will take care of themselves, but constantly work on yourself. Uh, just curious, Carl, what would be like one of those mistakes that you've identified that you've been able to get rid of or, or help reduce because of your analysis? Um, let's see. Well, cer certainly one that I can think of right off the bat is, uh, um, if you're, if you're going to panic, panic early. <laughs> that's kind of a lot. Maybe that's a time. I love lesson, that. But that's like, great. That's great. You know, um, if if some company comes out with earnings and it's negative, um, and it's changing the thesis, so we no longer consider them a framework company or, or something along those lines, and we we want to get out. We've found that if you sell it in the first thirty seconds or minute or even in the pre market, usually that's the right decision. Right. <laughs> Understood. Yeah, I love that. That's a really, really, really good point too. Because otherwise, what's the point? If you're going to panic, you might. Say, if you're going to do it. Yeah, I mean, hopefully we're not doing a lot of that, and exactly. we don't. But it's certainly one where we've we said, okay, we want to something bad happened. We want to sell this stock, and we 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 thought of, okay, well, should we sell some at the beginning, then some later? Should we hold off for the inevitable bounce? And uh, you know, one of the lessons, one of the many lessons we've learned yeah, we is do. that uh, just panic early, just yeah. sell it all right away, and and move on. I love um, it. You know, but. You got to make sure you're making the right decision to do that because once again, if the thesis is not damaged and it's just a temporary blip, that's probably a buying opportunity. Understood. Yeah, that's a really, really good distinction. So I guess, Carl, uh, to wrap up here, what's the best piece of advice you'd like to share with the audience? Uh, well, uh, you know, the the one that I, I often go back to is, is is sort of a classic, which is, you know, if you're passionate about what you do, you'll never work a day in, in your life. And, and I really feel like I live that. 
you know, I, I wake up and I'm kind of excited to go to work. Uh, you know, my, my wife says, I just want to, you know, get away from our four young kids and get a break. <laughs> but, you know, I, I mean, I love, I love this job. Uh, you know, I, I'm very competitive and, and investing in markets is certainly that, but you know, there's, there's also a human element here. And, and, you know, I feel like we really help a lot of our clients who, who certainly need it. Um, so that, that would definitely be the main one I would give. Uh, the, the other one, which is maybe not as, is classic, um, you know, when I first started at Deloitte, I think after the first month or so, um, you know, my, my boss took me out to lunch and, you know, I was always a hard worker. Um, but he felt like, you know, I was kind of relying on others to maybe complete the project or, you know, really cross all the T's and, and, and dot the I's. And what he told me was, you know, really take ownership for everything you work on, you know, make it your own. Even if you're working in a team, make sure they're doing their jobs well. And, you know, if you take ownership and care about the project you're, you're working on or whatever it is in life, really, uh, it's just going to come out that much better. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've certainly carried that through my career, and, and I think it's treated me very well. I love that. So passion and caring is fantastic. So, Carl, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Uh, well, there's there's multiple avenues in this day and age. Yeah. Um, I mean, they can certainly call me. Uh, you know, it's 203-714-9900. You know, my email address maybe is a better avenue. That's uh, cschultz at schultzandco.com. We have a website, schultzandco.com, and, you know, I'm on LinkedIn as well. So, you know, one of those avenues is probably achievable. I love it. Well, Carl, thank you very much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. And hopefully we'll talk again soon. Well, well, thank you so much for having me on. You know, I, I've certainly listened to some of your prior episodes, and I think, you know, you're, you're really providing a lot of value to, uh, you know, both non-professional investors, but also professional ones. Because, you know, I'm, I'm always trying to improve and get better at what I do as well. And it, it's certainly helpful to hear how other people think about, you know, the investing world and, uh, you know, that just don't, only makes me that much better at what I'm doing. Well, thank you very much for the kind words. It's very kind to you. I, that's the whole point of the show is just to get timeless educational advice and learn from some of the uh, smart money out there. That's the big guys that manage money for a living and do this day in and day out. So thank you kindly. Well, we're all, we're all always learning. And that's it. That's the name of the game. Well, thanks, Carl. We'll talk again soon. It's been a pleasure. All right. Thank you so much.